0: We live in a day that doubt about our faith is, I don't know, at least in America, where it's been any greater. Even during the beginning of our country, back in the 1700s, when the Age of Enlightenment uh, was at its, uh, at its height, with the, you know, the, the, the idea that, uh, that we can filter the Word of God through our intellect, rather than the other way around. This was something that took our nation by storm, and certainly our leaders by storm, and even though so many of our founding fathers were godly men, uh, many of them were very affected by the Enlightenment, and uh, like Jefferson, for example, is probably the prime example of one who had a great respect for the Word of God, and even a great respect for Jesus Christ. And yet, all of the scripture was somehow filtered through uh, what he could comprehend. And if he couldn't comprehend it, then he tended to doubt it. Well, this day and age that, where we live is filled with doubt. And we live, we live in a day where all you have to do is just watch the news or read, read uh, the paper. And we see people left and right doubting the Word of God more and more as time goes on. That's why, for one reason, it's so important that we make a commitment to continue to stay in the Scriptures and to allow the Scriptures to be what guides our lives and our emotions and our thoughts and our beliefs and our values, as opposed to the culture. Um, When Paul wrote in Romans 12, he says, uh, I think it was Phillips that basically paraphrased it this way, of Romans 12, he says, "...don't let the world squeeze you into its mold." And it's constantly trying to do that, isn't it? We live in a world that, that constantly tries to muddy up the Word of God. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where Satan asked the question, did God really say such and such? Yeah, he did. But uh, our world is listening to the voice of the tempter and uh, causing us as well sometimes to doubt the very things we believe. René Descartes wrote this, he said, If you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt, as far as possible, all things. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that definitely gives the mindset of of his day and age and more and more of our day and age that that seeking truth begins by doubting. Well, I think it can be a great catalyst for growth in our knowledge, but, uh, but again, we need to filter it through the Scripture and not the other way around. You know, today, it's almost like if you don't doubt, you're naive, and that's because the main thing that we doubt today, and when I say we, I mean our culture, is that there's any kind of objective truth to uh, what we believe. It's one thing to doubt what you don't believe, I mean, that makes sense. But what happens when you doubt what you do believe? When you get to a point where you're not really sure the truth or the extent of the truth of deep held values that you have in your life. Now, most of us, um, maybe in in an honest, quiet moment, maybe even in our prayers, we would admit to having some deep doubts about our faith, but I mean... Very few of us would ever say that out loud. Um, you know there are some things I guess it 's safe to doubt. Uh, I, I I doubt you know some things about eschatology or end times or prophecy because you just can't know. But what happens when you doubt like the basics? I mean, am I really saved? Uh, Has Christ really forgiven me of my sins? Do I have a security of my salvation? Or do I really need to keep my nose clean in addition to believing in Jesus just in case? That's what secures my salvation. These types of things are things that we may not uh, admit, but boy, sometimes they creep in, don't they? Well, I'd like for us to look at that today because thankfully you and I are not alone when it comes to this these sort of deep-seated doubts that occasionally creep in. Let's turn together to the book of Matthew and look at a couple of sections in Matthew. We're going to look today at one who knew Jesus, who preached Jesus and then amazingly doubted Jesus. John the Baptist. John the Baptist had an extraordinary life from the very beginning. Of course, you realize that his very conception was a miracle, almost like um, what we've looked at with Abraham and Sarah giving birth to Isaac at such an old age. John the Baptist's parents were also in that stage of life to where it was a bona fide miracle that he was even conceived. But he was. And undoubtedly, his parents had told him about the fact that he was a miracle baby. Um, people were eagerly looking, the Scripture says, to figure out why John was so significant, because he clearly was. And he, John must have heard from his mom how he was filled, how she was filled with the Spirit, how he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb John was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest, and so John, being the son of a priest, should have taken the vocation of a priest, but instead, he chose, or he followed God's leading into the vocation of a prophet. So, after the age of 25, he didn't enter the temple. Instead, he entered the wilderness. So, Matthew 3, let's start right in verse 1 and look at a few of these verses. It says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. We've heard about the Daniel diet. There's not uh, not that many people trying to market the John the Baptist diet here with locust and wild honey. What John was preaching, what everyone wanted to hear. This was great news that the kingdom of God was at hand. Israel had been waiting for the kingdom of God for centuries, literally, especially the centuries following the return after the exile. But coming back into the land, there was a high expectation that the Messiah was about to come. And here John the Baptist appears on the scene and says that the kingdom of God is, is near, but it takes repentance. And this is not a new principle. We've talked about this, I know, many times, but the Old Testament as well emphasizes this in book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I think it's uh, chapters 27 through 30 really emphasize that if you want to be restored, then repentance is the way to make that happen. Well John the Baptist is sort of the last great Old Testament prophet and he had a message that we see here the kingdom is coming but he also had another message we won't turn to the book of John but you're probably familiar with John's other message I say John it's 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 so funny when you read the book of John and the first character in it is John the Baptist yet it's not John who wrote the book of John so it's it's a little confusing But in the book of John, it says that John the Baptist's message was, Behold the kingdom, uh, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you've got these two messages, both from the lips of John the Baptist the kingdom and the suffering Messiah, the reigning Messiah and the suffering Messiah. And the Old Testament promised both of these. And no one knew how to reconcile them. How do you have a Messiah who dies and who reigns and lives forever? How do, you, how do you make those work together? Well, we understand the resurrection solves that problem, but they didn't understand that because resurrection was not on their radar. So most, what most people did, they do what we like to do, and that is they pick the parts of the Bible that they like, and the rest they just kind of brush under the rug. Well, they brushed that part about the suffering, suffering Messiah under the rug because we don't understand it and uh, we don't like it because they didn't understand that uh, Jesus dying would pay for their sins and basically provide uh, an eternity of salvation. They just wanted the king. They just wanted a political uh, ruler to come and squash Rome. That was That was it. And this is what John the Baptist also preached. Look down at verse 11 as he, you see some of the content of his, of his message. He says, "...as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So, you can see, John the Baptist was all geared up about the Messiah coming and cleaning house. He wanted the Messiah to come. Well, he was preaching the truth, but the the thing is, it's only half the truth. The other half is that The Messiah is also going to die on the cross or die for our sins. So, John was preaching both of these messages. He couldn't reconcile it in his mind, and so he just basically defaulted to the one that everyone wanted, and that is the King is going to come. He's going to rule. He's going to deliver us. Well, John was not only uh, preaching about Jesus, but he also did some house cleaning of his own, and he uh, preached against the ruler of the day, uh, King Herod Antipas. King Herod Antipas, you probably uh, are familiar with him, but he was the one who basically ruled most of the time of the ministry of Jesus. But Herod Antipas, in the early days also, he uh, he went to Rome and uh, visited his brother, and while he was there, his eye caught his brother's wife and vice versa. And long story short, they divorced their current spouses, and uh, Herod decided to to marry his brother's wife. Uh, Just nice and simple, you know, like Hollywood. Just just um, make it easy, and here we go. Well, that's exactly what they did. And John the Baptist says that's not right, and he called him out on it. And uh, as that happened, the, the the new wife Herodias wanted to kill John. Not a big surprise. But Herod uh, was afraid of John, liked to hear John preach, and instead of killing him, protected him in the, in the sense that he put him in prison. It was sort of a, a appease the wife, but also protect John, put John in prison. And we're told by the historian Josephus, the scripture doesn't tell us where John was imprisoned, but history does tell us, amazingly. The historian Josephus tells us that John was imprisoned at a place called Machyrus. Machairos is a Greek word that means sword, and uh, it, it was a a word, a title, a name for a military fortress. I want to show you uh, some pictures of this place. It's really pretty fascinating. I've been there a number of times, and uh, whenever I take tours to Jordan, we always go, if we can, to Machairos. So here's a picture of uh, Israel, or of the the uh, Holy Land here. And uh, my cursor's not very big. Let me make it a little larger here for a second. Hang on. That way you can see it, what I'm pointing at. All right, so this is a little easier. So here's Israel, and here's Jerusalem. And if we get here and enlarge it a little bit, I'm going to scroll down and you can see right here on the eastern shore of what the Old Testament calls the Sea of Asphaltus, which is basically the Dead Sea. Just to the east of the Dead Sea, you can see a place called Machiris. And so this is where this fortress was. And you can see this is where it says John the Baptist imprisoned and murdered. But notice also, this: if we look at this area... It's kind of got a gray tint to it, and it says Antipas, as well as up here it says Antipas. When Herod the Great died, Herod the Great was the one that tried to kill baby Jesus or toddler Jesus at uh, the age of two. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom divided to his sons. Antipas got Galilee and Perea, and Archelaus got all of Judea, at least only for a couple of years till Rome figured he was a terrible guy and they replaced him with procurators. That's how we got uh, governors like Pontius Pilate, because Archelaus was such a nut that even Rome said, you're not going to rule. We're going we're to put our own guys there. So Archelaus had this section, Antipas had Galilee and Perea, and then Herod Philip had this area up here, which uh, r- rarely enters the biblical picture, only a couple of times. But I, I just point this out that, that Antipas controlled the area where Machairus was. In fact, sort of a sidebar uh, story here that's going to make our message longer than it probably needs to be. But Herod, um, when he married his uh, he married Herodias, the wife that he did have was the daughter of the king of Petra uh, and the Nabataeans down in this area. At the very bottom, I don't know if you can see here at the bottom, and even the very bottom, there's a little arrow here that says Petra. But um when, when Herod's first wife heard that he was coming home with a new wife, she could put two and two together and figured her days are numbered. And so she asked her husband, Antipas, Hey, mind if I go spend some time at Machairus? And he said, Sure. And what he was, what she was really asking was, You mind if I leave the country? Because when she came to Machairus, she didn't stop here at Machairus. She kept going, and she went back down to Petra, home to daddy. Where she would be protected. And um, of course, that caused a battle. And anyway, the history goes on. But anyway, let's look at uh, some pictures. This is Machiris itself. You can see the Dead Sea here. We're looking to the west. So this is Israel over here in the distance. Here's the Dead Sea. And this is the modern country of Jordan. And on top of this tell here, you can see a couple of uh, pillars or columns. This is the Fortress of Machairis. And uh, Josephus tells us that this place was lavishly decorated. This is an artist's rendition based on the archaeology that was found there. And uh, it was a pretty nice place to go. It was kind of a a wonderful winter palace down during the cold months. You could go down toward the Dead Sea and you uh, you could have a nice place to vacation. But it had storehouses, it had these guard towers on the north and south. It had storehouses, it had a beautiful garden, it had a Roman-style bath. This big building here was a fancy dining room, and this big area here was a place for entertainment. So, I mean, he had a, a wonderful little vacation home, and Herod Antipas imprisoned John the Baptist here. In fact, if I can go back here to this picture before... See these caves at the bottom of uh, Machiris? We don't exactly know where John was imprisoned, but tradition tells us that it was in one of these caves. And I've walked into I know I've walked into this cave here. I don't think I've walked this far. But I tell you, this is not a great place to be. it, it It's dark. It's, it would be lonely, and it would be terribly um, terribly difficult to be imprisoned in, the, in a place like this especially during the hot summer months. All right, so back to the text here. Turn, if you would, to chapter 11. You're in Matthew 3. Turn to Matthew 11. John was imprisoned here for at least a year. We know that for sure. And at some point during that time, while Christ's ministry was in full force, We read, starting in Matthew 11, look at verse 2. We read, When John was in prison, Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? That's amazing to read that, isn't it? John the Baptist Asked Jesus, are you the expected one? The one that that John had said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one whom John had said, behold, he must increase, I must decrease. uh, Pointed to Jesus as the Messiah and a year in prison. And John is saying, are you really the Messiah? Or do we need to be looking for somebody else? This biblical hero, John the Baptist, doubted the very one that he proclaimed. You know, he had taught, of course, as we read, that when the Messiah comes, here's what he's going to do. He's going to clean house. He He is going to light a fire. And instead, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is running around doing miracles of mercy, feeding people. He's taking care of people. There's no house cleaning to it. And so John the Baptist is wondering, well... Maybe we got the wrong guy, especially since John's looking around at the prison walls and saying, this doesn't look anything like the kingdom of God I pictured. So, in imprisoned, you could could even think imprisoned in his own thoughts, John sends a message through one of his disciples to Jesus and asks him, are you the expected one? In other words, the expected one had expectations of him. And he was not meeting John's expectations. Not much of a kingdom. Here's something else that's true. If John was doubting Jesus, John was also doubting himself. And I wonder if this was probably the hardest part. Because what did John's whole life led up to? John's whole life to this point had pointed to Jesus Christ, to Jesus of Nazareth, to his cousin Jesus as the Messiah. And yet, if John's doubting Jesus, then John's doubting himself because he he'd been proclaiming uh he'd been proclaiming Jesus as a Messiah. John may have thought maybe I've missed my calling, maybe I'm not the forerunner, if he's not the Christ, then I'm not the forerunner because I've been pointing to him. You see how the doubt begins to just spiral down and to create more and more implications. If, if we lose our focus on Jesus Christ, that begins to spiral, and it begins to cause doubt in so many other areas of our life, beginning with ourself. I remember reading about a man in Pennsylvania who tried to sue God. I mean, the guy was basically sort of a nut, but uh, he, was, he was named Donald Drusky, and he blamed God for failing to bring justice against a former employer. The lawsuit read like this Defendant God is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely serious wrongs which ruined the life of Donald (laughs) Drusky. It went on to say that Drusky wanted God to make him young again, and uh, to make him a great guitar player, to resurrect his mother and his pet pigeon. Just the basics. And if God failed to appear in court, Drusky said that federal rules of civil procedure say that he needs to lose by default. Well, the U.S. District Judge threw it out, of course, and never even went to court because it was obviously ridiculous. But the ridiculousness of it gives us a great illustration of our first principle here. And here's the first principle, and we see it actually in the text, not in Dresky. But the the principle is this, that doubt often stems from unrealistic expectations. When we have unreal expectations of God, and God fails to meet those, doubt creeps in. Doubt often stems from unrealistic expectations. John struggled with his own sermon. How can a Messiah die for our sins and also bring in the kingdom? As we said before, nobody got this before the resurrection. So, they pick the parts they want, they they push the rest under the rug, and then Jesus didn't live up to the rest. So, now there's nothing to, there's nothing to lean on, and John begins to seriously doubt. Uh, and John's not the only one. Of course, the disciples were this way. Remember up at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Messiah has got to go to Jerusalem to die, to be rejected, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, you know, Lord, I've read the Old Testament. This doesn't happen to you. And he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus uh, basically then turns around and rebukes Peter. Peter says, No, Lord, you're not going to die. Jesus says, Yes, I am. And even after Jesus had died and been resurrected, on Easter Sunday, the resurrected Christ appears unknowingly to two disciples walking to Emmaus. And the two disciples walking to Emmaus said to Jesus, Uh, Jesus was a mighty prophet in word and deed, and we were hoping that it was him who was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus went on to tell these two, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? See, they didn't understand that the suffering part comes first. They ignored the cross and went straight for the crown. John the Baptist was doing the same thing. And often you and I will do the same thing. You know, in our prayers, it, it, and it, this is just how we are, and it's okay that this is how we are, but boy, it's a challenge. In addition to praying that God would heal us of all these physical maladies, which is okay to pray, I pray the same thing, we need to also add to it, Lord, teach me what you'd have me learn in this time. Let's don't waste the suffering. Let's use it. Let's let God do God shape our hearts and to be more submissive and loving to Him, to draw close to Him during the suffering, and uh, not just ask Him to take it away. Well, keep your finger there in Matthew, if you would, and turn back to Isaiah chapter 35, because when Jesus gets this message, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35. I read about a woman one time who wrote to J. Vernon McGee. And uh, she said, She says, Our preacher said that on Easter Sunday Jesus just fainted on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? And McGee wrote back to this lady and said, Dear sister, I urge you to beat your preacher with a leather whip for 39 heavy strokes, nail him to a cross hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his side, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, and then see what happens. In other words, there's no way that that's what happened to Jesus Christ. I like the phrase, don't believe everything you think. Isn't that a good phrase? We need to remember that phrase. Don't believe everything you think. Walt Allman said it this way. He said, doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your beliefs. So often, though, we're quicker to believe our doubts, aren't we? Because the doubts seem to claim our emotions, and our emotions so often steer our beliefs. If we think we got God figured out, and then God allows something contrary to that, We're quicker to doubt God than we are to doubt our doubts. Well, look how Jesus responded to John. You've got both Isaiah 35 and Matthew open there. So keep. now that Isaiah 35 is open, keep keep your finger there, but turn back and look at Jesus' response to John back in verse 4 of Matthew 11. So keep it where you can flip back and forth. So Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What kind of an odd answer is that? Are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? And this is how Jesus answered. Go back and tell John this. But Jesus is quoting Isaiah 35. So look look now at Isaiah 35 verse 5, this is the context that Jesus is quoting. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer. Jesus is showing from Scripture how Jesus' ministry is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Jesus was the expected one. Yes, John, I am the expected one. Isaiah 35 confirms that I'm doing exactly what uh, I'm supposed to be doing. But you know, there's also a more subtle form of encouragement here to John, and I'm not going to make this walk on all legs. I I I love geography, and so it's tempting not to throw something in that's that has a geographical significance. But I will give a disclaimer that this may not have been Jesus' purpose, but it could have been. When you look at the verses before uh, verse 5 and 6, look at the verses before verse 5 and 6. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Araba will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with the rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Okay, now look after verses 5 and 6 at verse 7. And the scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty grounds of springs of water, and the haunt of jackals its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. So, what? where's the encouragement there? Well, the context also. Jesus quotes from verses 5 and 6, but it's in a context that is talking about the very wilderness that John is imprisoned in. The Araba is where Machairus was. And John is saying, uh, uh, Jesus is saying to John, you know the context around these verses also The land, the barren land in which you live, isn't always going to be like that. In the kingdom which you are proclaiming, one day this desert is going to bloom. Let me show you the illustration that he gives. uh, If we look back at the screen here. So here's Machairus again, and here is the Araba. If you've been to Israel in the Dead Sea area and, and uh, Masada, it's probably the best view that you would get of this area. Uh, it's bleak. I mean, you go in the, in the summertime, there's not a blade of grass to be seen. So look at this picture, and now look at this next picture. This is Carmel, Mount Carmel. So look back and forth. From that to that, Jesus says, this is what it looks like now, John. But in the kingdom that you're proclaiming, this is what it's going to look like. Now, again, I don't want to make this walk on all fours, but it could be that that Jesus, by quoting this context, was not only saying, I am doing what the Messiah is supposed to do, and by the way, the way things appear now are not the way they're always going to be. Even the land where you're imprisoned is going to be changed in the kingdom. Now, we won't turn to Mark chapter 6. You can go back to Matthew now, but we're we're not going to turn to Mark 6, but you remember the story. Herod's stepdaughter danced for uh, Herod at his birthday party, and we are told by Josephus that this party occurred here at Machiris because this is the place where John the Baptist was killed. So, we know that it occurred in this area. Um. Now that I've taken the pictures off, let me put them back on and I'll show you something else that's good here. So this is the picture we saw of Macyrus earlier, and we talked about the different elements that are here. But see this area here with all the people in it? This is the courtyard where there was entertainment done. And so guess where Herodias' daughter danced? It would have been here it would have been in this square area and you can see it's surrounded by columns and let me just point out one column to you see these columns here on this end that is when you go to Macyrus today this is the only column that's still standing from that time or it was actually reconstructed but it was found there this is original this far distance one is from another era so just forget this but this one right here is from the time of when she danced. And you can see the original pavement here of the courtyard. This is this part's all reconstructed, but this is original. And then if you look at this, you can see the whole courtyard. So this is the area where uh, Herod's stepdaughter danced and which he promised her half the kingdom and end up what she all what she, all she requested was to have the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And of course that happened. So, kind of neat to see where it happened, and at the same time, kind of tragic. Well, here's a a second principle from the text. Uh, We get this because of how Jesus responded to John. Look at, uh, uh, or, or listen to this principle here. With a teachable spirit, doubt can serve as a catalyst for a stronger faith. With a teachable spirit, doubt can serve as a catalyst for a stronger faith. And we've got to have the teachable spirit. It's not just enough to have doubt, but to have doubt with a teachable spirit. Henry Drummond said this. He said, we are born questioners. Every child is full of every kind of question about every kind of thing that moves and shines and changes in the little world in which he or she lives. That is the incipient doubt in the nature of mankind. Respect doubt for its origin. It is an inevitable thing. It is not a thing to be crushed. That's such a good statement. It is not a thing to be crushed. It is part of man as God made him. Doubt is the prelude of knowledge. And again, it takes the teachable spirit. I remember when uh, our daughters were young, I'll never forget, one of my daughters came up to me one time and she said, Daddy, how do we know that God is real and not just something that man made up? Wow. How would you answer a kid that asked you that and wants an answer immediately? (laughs) How do we know that God's real and not just something that people made up? See, this, she wasn't standing there with her hand on her hips like, I don't believe there's a God, Dad. She was saying, help me understand what I don't understand. You see, there was a teachable spirit. With a teachable spirit, doubt can serve as a catalyst for a stronger faith because it drives you to figure it out. It takes you to God to to learn, uh, what am I not getting here, Lord? Help me understand something. That's why the attitude is so important. If you're doubting God with a contempt for Him, like our culture does, basically approaching him with the mindset, I've already got my mind made up? Or are you doubting because you're confused and you want to understand the truth? Big difference. And God honors those two different kinds of doubts in two different kinds of ways. Notice that that Jesus challenged John to shape his expectations from the Word of God. It's a couple of things that both from John and Jesus, that are very essential for us when we struggle with doubts. The first is that when John the Baptist doubted, where did he go? He went to Christ. He doubted Christ, and yet he went to Christ. What a great model. He didn't go to the philosophers of the day. He didn't go to King Herod. He didn't go to the high priest. John went to the source. He went to Christ. He went to the Lord and said, I don't understand. Help me understand. Jesus, when he responded to John, what did Jesus do? Jesus took John to the Scriptures. This is, this is so instructive. When we're struggling with doubt, we don't go to the world. We go to the Lord. We go to the Scriptures. And we let the Scriptures shape our thinking reshape our thinking, renew our mind, as opposed to going to the world and reading the uh, self-help books that, that cast doubt on the Word of God and try to undermine the Word of God, as opposed to going to the Word of God and allowing the Word of God to shape us. Um, and even when our expectations are biblical, here's another challenge. John's expectations were biblical, weren't they? The scripture said that the Messiah would clean house. It was a biblical expectation. The problem was timing. It wasn't time for God to clean house. He'll do it. He'll still do it. But it just wasn't time for it to happen. So even when our expectations are biblical, as John's were, we still see them through the lens of our expectations, of our timeline, not God's. So we need to always hesitate to assume that God's Word doesn't work because it doesn't work in our timeline. He may just just not be done yet. Think how long He's taken to shape your life and how long He is taking to shape your life. Um, It's the same with me. He takes a long time sometimes to fulfill His Word. It's not that His Word isn't good. It's that it just may not be time yet. And if you know someone who's doubting, we've talked about this from personal doubt, maybe you know someone who is doubting and who is, who is struggling with it. Think about how Jesus graciously responded to John, and we can have that same kind of gracious response to others. You don't need to turn there, but just jot down the reference of Jude 22. Jude verse 22. Jude simply says, have mercy on some who are doubting. Very well said. Have mercy on some who are doubting. To have mercy is to show kindness or concern. Jesus didn't slam John for expressing his doubts. Jesus didn't say, you've got to be kidding. You've been preaching me for years and you're asking me that question? That never happened. Jesus was gracious with John. He was merciful on one who was doubting. Well, if you still have Matthew open, look at Jesus' final words there to John in verse 6. He also tells John, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Why blessed? Because the mental struggle that doubt carries with us, carries with it, is also the seed for growth. If we seek God's answer, from the scriptures, just like Jesus challenged John to do. It causes growth in our lives. It causes a spiritual growth. And I love this, blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. It's almost an affirmation of you came to the right place, John, to ask me that question. But you need to trust me even when you don't understand me. Don't stumble over me. Trust me and, uh, and you'll understand in time. I guess the final thing that I would say, I say to you, and I say to me as well, is that we should never allow our expectations of Jesus to weaken our confidence in Jesus. Never allow your expectations of Jesus to weaken your confidence in Jesus, even when we don't understand how he's going to work it all out. Because it's not the end of the story. The desert will bloom one day. And John the Baptist, I wonder if John's going to, in the kingdom, he'll be able to go down to the Araba and look at the beautiful area of the Dead Sea, and there'll be fishermen fishing on the Dead Sea. The scripture says that it's going to be lush and beautiful like it was in the beginning. If John will go down there and remember his imprisonment and remember Christ's words and just think, you know, Lord, you did it all right. You did it all right. I think we'll have that that same reaction certainly in the kingdom, if not at some point in this life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this candid look at, this, uh, at the end of John the Baptist's life. And we aren't told how John responded. We're just told Jesus' words to him. But we have enough confidence and enough, uh, enough stock in the faith of John the Baptist to believe that because he handled it the right way, he handled his doubt the right way, that he died with full confidence in Jesus Christ, even though he didn't understand the timing of it all. And that's where we find ourselves, Lord, today as well. That we have a great confidence in you and a great confidence in your word, though none of us claims to have it all buttoned up. Just strengthen us, Lord, as we seek you and as we uh as we look to understand as we look to deepen our faith, let our doubt drive us closer to you and not farther away. And uh, also give us great patience with those who are at a different stage in their walk with Christ. Let us not judge them, but give us great mercy on them and help. Uh, let us be the tools that help them come along rather than uh, the stumbling blocks that affirm their doubts. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.